When I talk to most studio heads or like senior people who are in positions of looking at this sort of like broad staffing plan or have this long tail strategy for like expanding their companies or studios, I don't often see an awareness of, hey guys, I just found 15 engineers, here they are. I just found 20 artists, like this is great, right? It's more, it's great because it's more. Your team was already a cart stuck in the mud from like a productivity point of view. And you now just basically put 15 more people on the cart. Welcome to Building Better Games. Today we wanna talk about how to know when you should hire someone, super common question. Have you ever run into a situation where you hired a bunch of people, but nothing went faster? Your team seems to have all the right skills, but doesn't seem to get anything done. Or you see your company adding people just because maybe they're so talented without really understanding how they'll help and if this is the right time to bring them on. We've seen that as well. Uh, Bad staffing practices can make your and your team's job much harder. Using more people as a way to go faster simply doesn't work. In this podcast, we want to equip you to use staffing as an effective tool in your tool belt during game development. We'll dive into when to add more people versus when to focus on the system, how to get the most out of the people you have, as well as how to think about the team as an entity unto itself. After this podcast, we believe you'll be better equipped to make great decisions and help others make great decisions when it comes to adding more people to your team or company. Let's dive into it. Woo! Staffing. Everybody's most most excited about this conversation. I feel like generally most leaders are really excited about staffing or at the very least excited about the possibility of adding more people to their team. I mean, I think if you include anxious with excited, I think yes, maybe. <laughs> Every time someone has been like, okay, we got to figure out staffing. I can't say that that fills me with like butterflies in my soul. I'm always like, oh. Yeah, on the other hand though, if somebody if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I'm giving you five more engineers for your team, I feel like that's generally going to be an exciting thing for me. See, for me, I'm always like, oh, what's going on? But I'm adverse to change, I guess, <laughs> when it comes to stuff like that, it, it freaks me out. And I think you do see quite a run of responses. Maybe we just start with like, what is it? When we say staffing, what are we talking about? It isn't hiring. That's something like recruiting and hiring is its its own part of this. But I'll talk a little bit about what it means to me, but admittedly, I feel like I have a rather unorthodox view of it, or at least as what I'm about to say does not feel like something I've commonly experienced. Perfect. As what most leaders think of when they think of staffing. Yeah, awesome. To me, it's the deliberate construction of your teams. Mm -hmm. And I think that that goes far deeper than just sort of raw headcount metrics that are split apart by discipline. Yep. Which is, I think, you know, that you would read on some kind of an Excel spreadsheet somewhere. Like we have six open engineering recs and three open art recs. And like, and we need a senior art. Like if if you're lucky, it's like, we need a senior artist here and we need a junior artist here. Interestingly enough, Usually when I see someone actually indicate between seniority levels, it's almost as if like, well, you get 1.5 units of work out of a junior artist and you get 5.5 units of work out of a senior artist. Right. Like, which is obviously nonsense, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> could be, yeah. Certainly it's nonsense that you could create some kind of like a rudimentary system for measuring output in that way. Yes, exactly, exactly. If I only had four junior artists, that would be just like yeah. having one senior artist. Yeah. Like, no. There's so much more to consider there, I think, is is why I'm, again, back to the deliberate construction of my teams. Yes. And as we're going to talk about, there's many different angles on that, only one or two of which is the number of people in which discipline they are. So Yeah, I think I agree. And I love that deliberate construction of teams. That's short, it's crisp. And I think the most important thing is the idea of deliberate. Mm -hmm. We're not looking at that through the skill lens. It's actually multifaceted. Yeah. And we'll dive into that more, but maybe we just do an overview right now of like some of the things that come into our minds when I consider like, okay, I am attempting to staff, mm -hmm. understand how to appropriately staff my team or my organization. And I want to do that deliberately. Yeah. What does that mean? Dive into deliberate. A couple things that come to mind. One of them is project level risk. Mm -hmm. And then I would consider project level of risk to be a combination of the priority of the product that's being created on that team or teams mm -hmm. and the relative precariousness of that. Like basically like how bad is it if we screw something up? Um, and uh, what does it mean for the company if we screw something up? I have been in certain periods of my career where I staffed very senior people across the board on some of my products mm -hmm. and received a degree of criticism for that yeah. because of burn rate and things like that. And my response was, yes, I did bring in three or four extremely talented, high dollar senior people to run these teams um, at, at what you know, an outsider might think was below their scope of seniority, but I brought them in under the assumption of two things. One, if somebody screws this up, it's extremely bad for the company. Mm -hmm. Like the entire company's main objective screeches to a halt if these handful of people screw up. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is, is like from a priority point of view, like a value added point of view, this is at the top of our list for the company. Yeah. So I read those two things and I'm like minimize risk. Therefore, yeah. basically we're talking about seniority from that context. Another one is that you're, I think you're going to talk about a little bit more is behavioral composition. Yep. This is probably oversimplified, but if you have like six super alpha, just like you know, chomping at the bit to take action all the time, people and, and no thinkers or nobody to like say, hey guys, let's take a second and consider which direction we should go first. Like making sure that the team's composition is rich and thoughtful and balanced yep. as opposed to like over skewed in one direction or another. And this is interestingly, I feel like a lot of companies will screen for culture during the hiring process or screen for attitude, but they think of it at like the highest level. Like, is this person a fit for the company? Mm -hmm. And like, oftentimes I don't think they put as much rigorum into, is this person make sense on this particular team? Right. Even though there's like a clear leader on this team right now, they have a, a smooth flow and they get stuff done and that sort of works out that person sort of being the captain of the ship. And then I'm going to drop another captain in there who's got like a ton of experience. And on the surface, it's just like, well, this person's going to be super productive and awesome. But if I put them in the same room as that other person, all of a sudden now I've created a conflict yeah. that I have to manage. And I broke the ship harmony that already existed. Yeah. Two that I think about that are related to those stage of development of the project, mm. the earlier in the project you are, the easier it is to add people. 
and successfully onboard them and get value when you actually get into whatever it means to like kind of get the work done to deliver the value that often often a lot of that's done towards like the latter half yeah. of a project cycle. And it's ironic that so often people are trying to then add people. It's like the worst time when a project is almost done to be like, here's a bunch of people to make it go faster. And it's like, great, you just slowed all the people that are here down to onboard all the new people and those sorts of things. And we can dive into that more. There's something really interesting that just a light bulb that just came on for me. Mm -hmm. I was actually just listening to another podcast where the presumption was the opposite which is that actually like once you get into production and everyone knows what they're going to do, it's actually easier to onboard people. Mm. And I think that that's actually not true. Like it could be true, but it's not necessarily true. So it's interesting if you don't have a system, like a clean system for onboarding people, I agree with you. Then having less people makes it easier to onboard. I don't think I've ever seen a company with like a stellar onboarding process ever. I think I've heard consistently that like onboarding is just shit. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I think company onboarding can be really clean, but then they actually get to their team and it's like, oh, here's reality. Then knowing the difference between those two things as well, right? Like you might have great yeah. company onboarding. You might have like a good orientation or whatever. But then once you, you sort of just like drop the lost puppy off in front of the uh, the shelter, which is like them on the first day on their team, right? And they're right. just like, okay, right. <laughs> airdrop you and you're good to go now, right? Right. Yes. Add value. Congrats. In two weeks, you'll meet your manager again. Yeah, exactly. It's funny, There's, I think that there's a bit of truth, right? If I'm going through a game development life cycle, I know that in production, I will probably have more people on my team than I did in ideation. Mm -hmm. And so there's a natural scaling up that happens. However, if I wait till I'm like halfway through production or two thirds of the way through production, then realize like, oh no, or we're behind our deadlines. And I try to just airdrop a bunch of people in you end up slowing your project down or at least not speeding it up. Mm -hmm. Adding the more people slowed your existing people down. They tried to add value, but they weren't sure how. They had a ton of questions about like, what is the vision? Where are we trying to go? Yep. And so for me, that's where they're the waves of where now we're, we're starting off and we sort of go up into ideation. Then we slowly start tailing out of ideation while we slowly build up into pre-production. And then we build, you know, we come down out of pre-production while we're building up into production there will be a natural increasing in the size of your team as you do that. But just be aware that like at the end of any of those things, if you're like, well, let me wait till the end of pre-production before I bring on my art director who's going to set their style guide, like that's not going to go well, mm -hmm. you know, as an extreme example. Yeah, I don't want to derail us because you, you know, the original question you would ask is like sort of what are the, the key things to consider? I feel like we've covered most of them. Yeah. Another light bulb I think that comes on for me when we talk about this topic is how often new people actually slow you down and for how long they slow you down. Yes. When I talk to most like studio heads or like senior people who are in positions of like looking at this sort of like broad staffing plan or have this sort of long tail strategy for like expanding their companies or studios, I don't often see an awareness of, hey guys, I just found 15 engineers, here they are. Or I just found 20 artists, like this is great, right? It's more, yeah. it's great because it's more. And it's like your team was already a cart stuck in the mud from like a productivity point of view. Yep. And you now just like put 15 more people on the cart is what you just did or 40 more people on the cart. That's actually the, the fourth thing I was gonna hit around this idea of being deliberate. Yeah. It is how effective 
is your organization slash team slash company right now? Yeah. Because if the answer is not at all, I want to be really sure that it's not effective because I'm missing a skill set or a role. Hey, that's why we're slow right now. It's because we're missing this skill set. You know, we're trying to build a game. We don't have any engineers. It's really hindering our ability to make the game what we want it to be. I get it. You probably need to hire an engineer. But what we actually have engineers, we have all the people, we have all the disciplines we need, but one of them's not going fast enough. So let's add more of that thing. That's where exactly I think what you're describing comes up, which is whenever you see especially some decent number of people stuck in the mud, there's this myth of like, well, let's just throw more people. And I think exactly what you said. It's like throwing more people on the cart. It just gets more stuck. So you have to think about the effectiveness of your team. If you're not one of the guidelines we wanted to sort of present in this episode was if you're not already delivering effectively, you should figure out if you can solve that without adding any more people first. Yeah. Default to actually staffing less and solving the internal issues that are slowing you down first yeah. before looking at, let me bring on 12 more engineers, let me bring on another seven artists or whatever. I, what's even more interesting about what you just said there is like that is, you know, it's easy to, to knee-jerk think about that operationally. Like, well, if I have a bad process and the team is really slow at delivering in this process, I should fix the process before adding new people. Like that is true. But I think it it's also true across the board and actually only becomes more true the deeper the issue is. Yes. So like if you're dealing with a cultural issue, like a severe behavioral problem, an example could be, you know, meeting culture has got so toxic and bad and management has just forced more and more process. And so now the team is incredibly frustrated, jaded, and has low morale, and they don't trust senior leadership anymore. This is a problem that is very difficult to solve. This is not an easy problem to solve. This isn't just tweaking a process or rebuilding a system. Yeah. This is like fundamental. And so I would say that you get an N squared problem if you also then bring 15, 20, 30 new people into that organization. Right. Because again, not only was that problem hard to solve to begin with, but now it's way harder to solve now that you've expanded the footprint of everyone that's now partaking in that culture. Correct. So, you know, when we talk about holistic leadership, thinking also about product, like if you don't know what you're building, it doesn't make sense to double the size of your team. Right. If it's not a healthy place to work or there are really unhealthy behaviors or paradigms on a cultural level or you don't know what your culture is, that might also be worth considering, you know, slowing down the hiring plan. Because, uh, yeah, you're, all you're doing is just solidifying a problem that is already hard to solve. There's kind of two things to take away from that. And one is, I think, a bias towards fewer people, not more people. You want to be like, how can I help the people I have be more effective rather than let's add more people regardless of their effectiveness? And that, by the way, if you actually get really good at focusing on that, a lot of especially startups or mid-sized companies that have to think a lot about burn rate, like that is a meaningful improvement to your burn rate if you can really start efficiently yeah. solving that. Like as an operational lead, if you're good at that, you are such a value add to any company you work with just in terms of money saved. Yeah, It's crazy. Going back to this idea of deliberate construction of teams, there's a lot of levers you can pull there, right? Like mm -hmm. it's interesting to note that we often see game studios like really aggressively hiring where we also look at the basics of the way that they've structured their organization. And we're like, 
this, the way you've set this up, like the way your teams are organized makes collaboration so difficult and painful. I'm suggesting again, that we should be deliberate about who we put where and how we organize our teams instead of scaling into a model that's already like 90% overhead. Yeah. So we have this idea of deliberate construction of teams, right? That is how we think about staffing and bias towards fewer people and bias towards, I think, the effectiveness of the existing system over trying to solve throughput or output of a system by bringing more people in. I would say that the the argument that Ben and I are making here is more like if, again, if you're stuck in the mud, Yeah. if you're 10% efficiency or 20% efficiency, don't staff up a bunch of people. If you're trying to go from 80 to 90% efficiency, I think you're probably clear to add some more people to the team. Yeah. That's a scenario that I think you're going to get your velocity that you want or get, get a lot of velocity. And I think both Aaron and I have experienced times where the removal or addition of a person has been crucial from like a staffing perspective, removing a toxic performer or bringing in a high performer has really shifted the project from like, shoot, I don't know how we're going to do this to like, oh, now we have a path forward. Yeah. By, by the way, that's worth noting that point you just made. I've sadly been there more often than I would have liked to be in my career. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talked a lot about this idea of, hey, if the team is struggling, don't add more people to it right now. But we didn't talk about how you can get a huge boost by removing someone. I am very comfortable with my stance of being aggressive about that kind of stuff. I, I don't care how senior the person is. Like, I don't care. They can be the best artist in the world. If they make every single other person on the team feel like shit or just condescendingly bash everyone else's ideas, I've long been of the opinion that I'll take six doe-eyed, you know, junior artists or engineers that are just looking to collaborate and helping each other out and have enthusiasm and positivity and supporting each other and versus you know, one just like nuclear bomb level, just like legend of a contributor who just, you know, poops on everything they touch. Yeah. This stuff matters so much. It's so much like morale is real. It's real. Yes. Well, and I think that's something else you consider with staffing as well. Mm -hmm. And so in that idea of being deliberate, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you can look up around what's the ideal team construction, like size, you know, five to seven, up to nine, whatever, there's all these different rules you can follow, but they're pretty similar. Most of them say you want a group of people working together on the same thing, and that group should probably be less than 10. Usually you have people on that team functioning as leaders Mm -hmm. because you're starting to get to a scale there where that's important, and you can't have it be too much larger than that or it becomes hard to maintain the number of connections for any individual. And that, by the way, is another thing when you're being deliberate about staffing, if you have a team that's already sort of at the upper end of that, you know, nine or 10 people working together and you add four to it, you may actually blow out most of the team's ability to hold a picture of who we are as a group now. And that's just a human limitation of like the number of connections I can maintain in my mind of different people that are working together with me on something. The thing that I always ponder when I think about staffing, when I hear people talk about it in a very like off the cuff, oh, we'll just add an engineer here or we'll just bring in a couple artists here or something like that is 
a lack of understanding of all the consequences that are involved with bringing someone into a team. Mm -hmm. And they are all those things. Did you, hey, did you just make the team too big? Did you just, because they were senior, you brought in a leader, but now you have, I, I remember there was a, an R&D project. I wasn't on it. They'd hired nothing but senior people and they were very proud of that. And they were like, we're all senior people. We hired nothing but the best. Like, and they, I mean, they were legit good. Like all these people inside of their disciplines across art, engineering, everything. They were really, really, really good. And they didn't produce very well. And later on, we brought in a production leader to that space. And when they stepped in, one of the first things they did was remove some of those very senior people because their realization or their recognition was, I don't need, you know, three or four art directors. That's ridiculous. I need an art director who can set an art style. Having three or four meant that we were just constantly sort of trying to figure out the style and we couldn't quite align and all this different. We were, everybody was almost too high level. I don't need that. I need one person who's thinking high level. I need a lot of people yeah. that can sort of follow that direction. I'm not saying they can't use their seniority to inform it, but I need a shot caller on the art space. Yeah. And I didn't have one. I had three. And so that was not helping us move forward rapidly during ideation and prototyping. It was actually causing conflict for us. Yeah. So even though that team was so proud of like everybody being senior, their personalities, I'm not saying it's wrong to have a lot of senior people, but the personalities that were present, and you have to be aware of this, may actually slow you down more than speed you up. And again, I think that that is indicative of this idea that one plus one plus one plus one plus one I don't know how many ones was that? Five? Yeah. Equals it five. Keeps, it keeps N plus Equals one in, five. right? <laughs> math major over here. That you often see in staffing, right? That leadership's apply to staffing. Right. It's like I got five 10 megaton nuclear bombs. So, you know, I have a 50 megaton nuclear bomb. And it's like, no, it doesn't work that way. And, you know, there's a concept there that I think is really important for holistic leaders to understand, which is a good team is really, really, really more than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think that's the thing you're looking to capture. And so the piece of advice there would be when you're adding people, removing people, hiring people, doing whatever the things you do with people are when it comes to teams, consider the team as an entity, like a living, breathing entity in and of itself. Value it. Right. And, and by the way, on one end of this equation when you really, really nail that, careful about touching it. Like I would say that, you know, a philosophy that Ben and I have always had is if you have an extremely high performing team, like one of the things I've I've been frustrated about in the past at companies that I've worked with is, you know, you get teams that just grow and grow and grow and do better and better and better until this organism that is the team is so powerful. Mm. And everyone there has so much trust and so much collaboration and like they, no problem can get in their way. And then it's like, okay, we shipped it. Now let's like, you know, sell off the entire team for spare parts. Right. And it's just like, no, actually, I would rather take that high performing team and put them on a different product that was maybe not as congruent with their skill set as the one they were working on before. Because again, that greater than the sum of their parts performance is going to carry over and you get all of that stuff for free, which I would argue is the hardest stuff and the most powerful stuff that you get for free. So, you know, it all comes back to this roundabout idea of like valuing and understanding the team as its own entity and to, to treat it with respect. Yeah. I would say that the sum of a team's parts are always 
different from the value it provides, right? And in the good case, like you were describing, it's greater than. Mm -hmm. The best teams make each other better, not worse. Yeah. You and I have also both been part of teams where it seemed like the opposite was true. Yeah. Where it was like we had we had one plus one plus one plus one plus one, and we were somehow getting 1.5 out of that. Yeah. Or something. And it, when you look at each of the individuals, they're, they seem like they're a good individual, but they're not collaborating well. Yep. And that's, again, the case where if you were to say, well, let's just bring in more people because we need to get three units of work. And right now we're getting 1.5 out of five. So let's bring in another five and let's get to three. And it's like, nope, you're just going to make it worse. You're way better off resolving what's going on. Why aren't these individuals working well together? And it, I think we have a tendency to blame the individuals in that case. Often the system is inhibiting their ability to do work. I think the last podcast I brought up the the story of an animator who was talking to a designer and you know said he got a lot of work done when he had the designer sitting next to him. Much more work. He said he got like more work done in a day than he had in the previous three weeks because somebody was actually there to help him hook everything up. If I look at that from the outside through a very simple lens, I might just see animation isn't getting enough work done. Let me add more animators. And so I start throwing animators at that problem, right? I'm like, well, let's hire more and more and more. And now I have a bunch of people all still completely bottlenecked by the fact that it actually, in order for them to get work done, they have to have the designer sitting next to them. Yep. So now I've just got three animators bothering a designer all the time to get the same amount of work that's still bottlenecked by the same bottleneck. Yep. And when we look at that more carefully, we can say, wait, how else would I solve this? Well, actually, maybe rather than more animators, I need more designers. Maybe rather than more animators, I need a better set of tools. I need a better system of tooling that allows the animators I have to work without a dependency on designers or at least not as much of one. Yeah. So maybe actually what I need to do is bring in engineers and tools engineers. What you're essentially saying is that an effective leader when thinking about this problem needs to be aware of the concept of flow and understand it, like what the flow is or is not on their respective teams. Because yes. the example you gave was was beautiful, where it's like you added more animators and all you did was stress the designer even more. Yeah. And I think I've seen leaders often make the mistake of assuming that that's like a net zero problem. Like, oh crap, it actually wasn't the animators. But, you know, worst case scenario, I just have more animators that I need to figure out how to put to work now. And it's like, no, you actually slowed down your entire organization. Your designer is less effective than she was before. It's, and again, this is understanding flow, right? This is like you take a, a parking lot, which is actually a freeway, and you, you shove 600 more cars onto it. Right. You've now made a problem exponentially worse, right? So there's a pro tip there, which is just be aware of where your bottlenecks are. Like do yes. the simple exercise of being like, you know, here are all the steps of the process and like, where are the ones we're slowest right now? Like even a 15 minute due diligence session there could save your team an extraordinary amount of pain when you're doing staffing work. So some people, I've heard this would take the stance that, hey, if you hire great people, don't worry about if you've got a role for them. Don't worry if there's a spot for them in your work. If you hire great people, they're going to produce great things. Now, we've said a lot that seems to run contrary to that idea. I'm curious if that's just because we would both say, I just disagree with that in principle, or if you would say, well, here's the, the way in which both those things are true. It's a necessary but not sufficient argument is what what it is. It is true. But 
that it automatically leads to value is the thing that is incorrect about the statement. And you see that kind of statement thrown around all the time. Just hire great people and then everything else kind of falls into place. And it's like, no, as a leader, you're responsible for understanding the system and how your teams function and what your teams need and thinking again about the team as a living, breathing entity unto its own right. Like we have seen teams of all the best people, of all great yeah. people not work well at all. It's actually not about the individual at all. Right. And I don't mean that the individual doesn't matter. The individual matters a ton. But the lens you're looking through as a leader is not an individual lens. Yeah. In my opinion, that role should be on that person's manager, actually. Right. Yeah. And this also comes back to that idea that we talked about earlier, tend to look to fewer people, tend to look at the system and improving it, getting more out of the people you have is honestly often much less complex and much simpler to pull off than bringing in and onboarding new people, which takes who knows how long. So yeah, even though you're biasing towards fewer people and you're biasing towards fixing the system and making that better, sometimes you do need to add somebody into your system to make things work better. Mm -hmm. And often that's a skill set Thing. Like I am missing, I have a team, they're trying to create a UI for some part of the player experience. And we seem to really struggle because the UIs we produce aren't very good. I look at the composition of the team, it's a bunch of engineers and some QA and a product lead or something like that. And I realize what's going wrong with the UI. It's not that we're actually not fast at producing it. It's that it's not very good and we have to redo it a lot and we don't seem to be very good at making UI. That may be a time to go, maybe I should hire a UI designer. It may be the skill set you need to improve the throughput of that team. The bottleneck isn't how much stuff you're producing, the bottleneck is how much of it is good. And so what discipline can you bring in that would help it be good? Because if you do that well, maybe that UI designer steps in and immediately, suddenly, you're going so much faster than you thought was possible because you have someone who's actually an expert in creating UI. And so suddenly, your players are happy, your stakeholders are happy, the product leads like, this is going great, and you're flying, and it was all because you properly identified, like, this is the bottleneck, and it's actually a skills bottleneck. It's a quality bottleneck, not a stuff bottleneck. There's something else I want to go into, which is management overhead as a concept when you're thinking about staffing. It has been a very common thing I've seen where I'm just regularly seeing managers that have eight direct reports, 12 direct reports, 20 direct reports, 30 direct reports. This tends to happen in rapidly growing organizations, but that there seems to be an over-focus on getting individual contributors boots on the ground so we can make more stuff as quickly as possible and not thinking about whether the system can actually sustain that amount of bodies. We understand how a person's relationship with their boss can be such a massive part of how they view their role and their feelings towards their job every day when they come in. But even more so now that we're like being stretched apart with the pandemic and all these things, it's like it matters. Like having a good boss that really gives a crap about you, that has time for you, matters. I don't care who this person is. If they have 30 direct reports, they are not doing that. Like yeah. that person's entire calendar is filled up with one-on-ones. It's insane. And so it, this is something that I think needs to be considered 
when it comes to staffing as well as like who's going to manage this person or these people and like what what is the efficacy of that service that they're getting because yeah. good management is a critical service to offer all of your people and by the way again we talked about onboarding earlier if you don't have any onboarding stuff which would make sense if you're too busy to build the onboarding stuff well guess what if you're too busy to build the onboarding stuff it probably also means that you're so busy that you're having to like load up all these managers with a bunch of people and it's just like it's a problem that just like compounds on itself. I've seen a lot of like engineering leads, art leads, tech design leads, just different discipline leads, just feeling like they're overloaded all the time. And they're almost forced into that world where they're oversimplifying things in terms of like, well, this team needs two and that team needs three. And I've got to hire all these people. And then I've got these four people and they need help. And I got to figure out something for them to do. And it's just like, it becomes this super reductionist, low, low efficacy system where the manager's super stressed out. All the employees are stressed out and they're not actually thinking about any of these things we're telling you guys to think about. They've lost the product focus. Mm -hmm. They've lost the value focus. They've lost the audience focus. Now they're trying to execute their job as manager. And their job as manager apparently is right now, I need to find the three people over here and the two people over there. And if nobody's actually saying, well, wait a minute, how are we doing towards getting this game done? In the same way that you can have insufficient management for the number of people you bring in if you hire too quickly and focus entirely on individual contributor level roles, the same thing can occur with vision and leadership. If you bring in a ton of people, but you don't have sufficient efficient vision and leadership in place operating inside of your organization, you're going to become really good at producing a bunch of stuff that nobody actually needs and be very wary of that. I want to actually point to a really insidious incentive I have seen in multiple organizations that relates to this. And you don't realize how much this can hamstring you. It's the idea that the more people that are inside my organization, the more senior I can claim to be. (laughs) Like the more senior I am perceived to be by others to some extent. And this gets really rough because I've actually, I have felt in my own career, there was one time where I reduced the size of an initiative. It was a multi-team initiative doing like tools and back-end tech development. And I reduced its size pretty substantially, I think by like 20% or something. I didn't like fire a bunch of people, but there were some teams that, that weren't very effective and I sort of moved people off of those teams onto some of the other teams and elsewhere in the organization where they could add more value to the overall product. But I shrank my team and I realized later that because I shrank my team, even though I was now, that organization was better at producing value regularly, I was sort of punished when it came to seniority because they were like, well, I mean, before you were kind of looking like you were going to become senior, maybe even lead, that sort of thing. But like now that your team's, that your initiative is really small, I'll be honest with you, you know, when that happened to me, there was a part of me that was that was really frustrating was like, well, shoot, why don't I just like staff up some more teams or something? Right. Yeah. I'll just grow some teams then so I can be perceived as having and be aware of that, especially senior leaders. Be aware of the incentives you're creating. The number of people operating within a leader's organization is not a good indicator of that leader's seniority is a very roughly correlated thing. I would take that a step further to say that if you are in that senior leadership position where you're overseeing those behaviors, it is to your benefit to have a culture that celebrates one of your sub-leaders stopping working on something that's not important. Yes. You want to see something that goes more to the bottom line of your burn rate or more to the bottom line of your budget than just about anything else? Having your people 
aware and empowered enough and incentivized to stop working on crap that's that you don't need or that's not important that is paradise like uh, that and so the last thing you want to do is set up a system that punishes people for doing that yes. we should celebrate people for doing that it take it's an act of courage honestly at most organizations the way i would view it is staffing up is a last resort and it's often necessary as i was saying when you go from ideation into prototyping or pre-production or however your your thing flows up to you know production whatever you're likely to add people. That's probably necessary for most products because you're going to just reach a point where it's like, hey, we now need to produce a lot of assets, right? We're in production. We know what the game is. We know it's fun. Now we need, you know, 10 levels. We have one, right? Let's staff up. Let's add artists. Let's add level designers. Let's, you know, add engineers so we can get this all performant. Let's staff up because it makes sense to do so. And I, so I'm not going to say that's wrong, but your first response should always be, can I do more with the people I have? Can I fix the systems that are already present? And then when those things aren't true because you either don't have the skill or you're already operating efficiently, that's when you go, let's add more people. We're operating efficiently, let's add more people and so we can get even more efficient output. And when you're doing that, remember that when you scale people, you also scale leadership, you scale management, you scale the need for vision. All those things happen. It's much easier to keep five people aligned and going in the same direction than it is 20. And no joke, like when you start getting to 20, 50, 100 people, it suddenly becomes very difficult. You need like layers of your organization to actually track everything that's going on. There was one other thing I wanted to, to talk about in this, and it's this idea. This came to me once when I was doing a, a long running art project. Someone on the team uh, named Oliver was referred to as the heart of the team. And I remember thinking about that at the time. And I was like, that's really interesting because actually when somebody, when the person said that, I knew what that meant. I intuitively understood what they were talking about. And it made me start thinking about staffing differently. Again, there's the very simple lens that a lot of people view staffing through. What discipline at what seniority and how many? And we've described some other ways to view that. But there's another one, which is there are these like intangible traits that show up in teams when they come together. And when that person was referred to as like the heart of the team with that, what the person who said that meant was they were in touch with the emotions of the other people. People were comfortable talking with them. And they almost like, if you were to talk to them, you would get the empathic sense of the team. Like, this is how we're feeling. This is who we are. And so it happened to be a leader. It was a, it was a guy, like I said, named Oliver. He was very empathic. He was very aware. He was very connected emotionally to the others on the team. It was a real skill and a gift he had. And I think it helped that team a lot more than his senior title in his art discipline implied. I started thinking about, well, what other sort of centers exist? If I viewed Oliver as an emotional center, what other centers exist? And I came up with some very rapidly. And I'm not going to tell you this is like an exhaustive list, but this is something I now think about whenever I'm assembling a team or thinking about adding somebody to a team, or especially when someone's thinking about being removed from a team, right? Oh, we want to move someone on your team over to this other group. Often we just go, okay, cool, it's a mid-level engineer. So if you pull that mid-level engineer away and you replace it with another mid-level engineer, nothing else is like, that's fine, right? It's all easy once onboarding happens and everything. Not necessarily. So a couple of the centers that I thought of and that I tend to see a lot on effective teams, there tends to be somebody who's like a driving center. And this is not necessarily doing all the work themselves, but somebody who seems to just drive forward like this sort of action bias. We're moving, we're moving, we're moving. 
And people get behind that person. They're like, yeah, that person, like they, they sort of set the tone of we're going to get the work done. Like we're going to do what we need to do to deliver the value we're trying to deliver. Another one that's really important is the vision center. Somebody on that team who's saying, this is where we're going. This is what matters. This is what's important. These are the priority things. That's almost a defined role in many organizations, a product manager, product lead, maybe a designer in games actually is often doing that role. These are the most important things we need to do. If you have one of those, it's shocking how much that can galvanize the team towards good outcomes. Mm -hmm. And in their absence, it almost doesn't matter how many people you put on a team. If there is no vision, it, we're just all producing like mostly useless stuff. We're sort of guessing at what we're doing. Yeah. And then another one that I saw was it's something like in the anchor of the team, like the person who is calm in the storm. They can buffer the team when things go crazy. That person can actually be an example of like, it's okay, we're going to get through it, we're okay, let's take the next step, let's take the next step, let's take the next step. I don't think you need to have all of these in separate people. Some people can do multiple of these roles. I think if you're absent any of those four, you may run into situations that really distress and disturb your team. I think about that when I'm staffing a team, and especially when I'm changing a team's composition. Am I losing a core intangible element on the team that's not as simple as like a mid-level engineer is stepping away. Let me bring a mid-level engineer in. That whole thing you just went into is a prime example of something that you all as leaders need to be super aware of, which is sort of the McNamara fallacy, mm. which is, you know, we tend to overvalue quantitative measurements for things. Mm -hmm. A lot of these things we're talking, like we're, these are human beings. Like what that's at the end of the day, when we're talking about staffing, we're talking about how do we leverage human beings for the maximum amount of sort of creative output, right? And value creation. And a lot of those things by nature, a lot of the sort of ingredients that go into that proverbial soup are intangible by definition. And I know that that in production and game production and game leadership, that often creates kind of like a, an emotional reaction. It's like, I don't like intangibles. When are we going to get the stuff done? How do we put the people here? How, wh what's the backlog? What's the, and it's like, you can't do that with this. Right. Like to know if somebody is the emotional center of the team is something that you will only ever really feel or know in your gut or observe from watching people behave for periods of time. So there is an, 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 a very intangible thing here that I think you're responsible for as an effective leader because knowing and understanding those intangibles is going to be a critical input when you make staffing decisions. Yes. I also think too, as a leader, if you realize you're in a space and you're missing something, it is your job to, as best you can, pinch hit in that area on behalf of the team until that void gets filled. And I think that's also something that can inform how you behave, how you operate with a team. But it, I loved what the point you made. It requires paying attention. You can't get it off of a spreadsheet of this is the breakdown of the team. It requires you being present and like watching. And it's actually something, by the way, senior, more senior leaders can mentor their more junior leaders around. What aspects is your team missing if I were to describe these things? Okay, I need you to start filling in in that space. Right. I need you to just start like, transforming yourself to some extent. And that's something leaders need to do whenever they go anywhere. Just another thing that's specific to game development that Aaron and I have both seen. And I hesitate to say like ideal ratio of what we need from an engineering to artist or designer to engineer or anything like that sort of perspective. 
if you are focusing on making sure you're getting the most out of the people you have, there's huge implications for how you approach things like tools development and the sort of the fundamental systems of collaboration, like even something like Jira or Handsoft or whatever. How much time are people spending in those things? How much time does an artist have to spend once they finish an asset to get it properly checked into the build? Do they need somebody else to do that for them? All these things matter. And I think often we undervalue how much faster our developers could move if we could get the tools more out of the way in game development. Mm -hmm. One of the things I like to keep in my back pocket on that subject is if uh, the average contributor in a certain space puts forward 50% of their time every day towards just like struggling with tools and technology and bad process or whatever it is, like if you hire somebody into that, you're only getting 50% of a person. Yes. Yes, you're getting 100% of the burn rate and 50% of the value, yeah. especially engineers and tech artists. These sorts of supportive function roles in a lot of ways that, that can do tools development and systems development and backend development. We tend not to think about them because they're indirectly valuable to the product. To ignore them is to end up wasting a lot of time and to do a lot of hiring people at 100% burn rate for much less than that value. Mm. So anyway, I don't want to diverge too far from the idea of like, hey, we're talking about staffing. We're talking about what does it mean to deliberately construct a team? So let me ask this question. If someone had asked, how do I know when I should hire someone or do I need more people? Do we feel like we've done a good job of answering that? I think the trick is, is that's not actually the question people are asking. Mm -hmm. I think people tend to believe it's always the time to hire somebody, mm. or it's always a good thing to hire somebody. And we're saying it's more complicated than that. And there's a lot more levers to pull than that. And if from that perspective, like if the question was, how do I think about staffing? Sorry, how do I think we've definitely answered that question. Yeah. So in summary, there's four things we want you all to keep in mind when you're thinking about staffing. The first one, again, is that idea that the team is a living, breathing entity, and you need to consider the culture and strengths within the team for which you're staffing. You want to multiply that effect that they have as a unit. The second thing is consider the collaboration cost for your organization and for your teams today before you bring in new people, and also consider how new people will impact the collaboration cost once they're brought in. The third thing is a person's personality, experience, leadership. Again, as Ben mentioned, whether they're the heart or the brain or the thinker or the leader of the team or whatever also matter, not just their skills and expertise. A person cannot be boiled down to just which craft expertise they have. It's, it's again, it's all of their qualities and how that fits into that living, breathing entity, the team. And then the fourth and final is making sure that you have an onboarding system and that, or a way to effectively onboard people. And at the very least consider how a person or people onboarding is going to impact your teams and them once they get going. If progress is a struggle at your game company, we'd like to help you. Email us at info at valarinconsulting.com. That's info at V-A-L-A-R-I-N consulting.com. And we'll set up a free 90 minute call to dig in more with you. Thanks for listening to Building Better Games with Aaron and Ben. Please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Valarin Inc. We'll catch you next time. Mm -hmm.